You're listening to a Soulfire Productions podcast. Welcome to Wellness Realness, where we get very real about all things health and wellness, physical, mental, financial, and spiritual. I'm your host, Christina Rice, a nutritional therapy practitioner and energy healer turned holistic business coach for ambitious entrepreneurs. And I'm here to help you up-level every aspect of your life. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You can find an endless amount of content from me and join my online membership at christinaricewellness.com. And if you want exclusive behind-the-scenes content and my most unfiltered self, DM a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review to Wellness Realness Crew on Instagram and request to follow my super secret account. You can also join the Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe Facebook group to hang out with other listeners in the crew. Get ready for some wellness realness. I have been very excited to release today's episode, and I know many of you have been looking forward to this very much as well. On today's show, I am chatting with the co-founders of Mastering Diabetes, Cyrus Kambada and Robbie Barbero. They run a coaching program that teaches people how to reverse insulin resistance with a low-fat plant-based diet and both have really incredible healing stories of their own. Both were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and were able to achieve huge improvements in blood sugar regulation with a low-fat plant-based diet. And they have been on my radar for quite some time. As you know, I love to experiment with my diet and I have been eating a plant-based diet for the last few months after being largely keto and paleo for the greater half of the last five years. And in looking for resources around this, their book, it's a New York Times bestseller, Mastering Diabetes, was really helpful for me. And if you're interested in this topic, I highly, highly recommend checking out their book. It is really well written. And unlike a lot of plant-based diet books that are really written toward people who lean more toward a standard American diet, this book addresses concerns of people who have been taught that a low-carb, high-fat, paleo-style or keto-style diet will help them the most with their blood sugar control. So I don't have type 1 diabetes, but I have always had issues with blood sugar control. That was actually the first diagnosis I ever received about five years ago, pre-diabetes. And with all of my experiments with my continuous glucose monitor, made it really clear to me that when I was on a high-fat, low-carb diet and a carnivore diet, my blood sugar regulation was truly awful. I was really struggling with highs and lows. I would get down to the 40s and then be fasting at 200, and it was just, it was wild. And so I decided to try something I had never tried before, and that's why I have been doing this experiment for the last few months. And I had heard Cyrus and Robbie on many different podcasts and was itching to interview them myself and ask my own questions. And I know a lot of you come from a similar nutrition background as me, whether you are a holistic nutritionist or a health coach or just really into the whole paleo keto world. But I pride myself on being very open to all ways of eating. And I have never had somebody come on the podcast really talking about the benefits of a low fat 
plant-based diet. And I really wanted to have this conversation on the show. So I'm super excited for you guys to hear from them. I highly recommend this book if you're interested in learning more about this topic. It's really well-written and not like a lot of the other books on a similar topic. And Robbie and Cyrus are just such great guys. Genuinely just want to help people, whether that is with managing their type 1 diabetes or their type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance. I had a lot of fun chatting with them both on air and off. So you can check out their book, Mastering Diabetes. You can go to masteringdiabetes.org to learn more about their coaching program and head to their Instagram page at Mastering Diabetes to learn more. Definitely keep an open mind because I know a lot of you are coming from a similar background. I I came from being more in the low-carb paleo keto space. So I think this will be super interesting for many of you and I'm really excited for you to hear it. I also just wanted to remind you that Enrollment is open right now for my up-level membership. If you are into all things health and wellness and are looking for a community and support in growing your intuition and tapping into all of your manifestation abilities, up-level is for you. We have monthly Q&A calls, monthly manifestation activation calls, a ton of exclusive video trainings and blog posts. And that's where I put my channeled messages. I share more behind the scenes of my personal diet experiments, and we have an incredible community of amazing high vibe women. Doors are closing in the middle of August. It is a monthly membership, so you can cancel at any time, but this gives you access to an insane amount of resources, blogs, video trainings, exclusive access to course content from me, downloadable guides and recipe books, all the things. Plus, if you love the podcast, I pre-release podcast episodes, the video interviews, the uncut interviews, and I post them in Uplevel as well. So if you are interested in joining, head to christinaricewellness.com slash membership, and you can sign up there. So if you want the video interview with Cyrus and Robbie, you can actually check that out in Uplevel plus all of the other content and chat with other community members about all the things you find. That's it for my updates. Enjoy this episode with Robbie and Cyrus from Mastering Diabetes. Robbie and Cyrus, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I have been so excited to chat with you. And to start off, how about Robbie? You can tell my listeners a little bit about what you two do. Yeah. So Cyrus and I were both living with type 1 diabetes. And it was that personal experience that has gotten us really inspired and passionate about teaching the world the truth about insulin resistance. and. Once you understand the science of insulin resistance and what you can do to maximize your insulin sensitivity, you can take full control of not just your diabetes health, but insulin resistance is at the core of people who have you know, low energy, people who struggle with achieving their ideal body weight, people who struggle with, I mean, we're talking acne, we're talking um, you know, major diseases like heart disease and cancer and high blood pressure, high cholesterol, chronic kidney disease. It really comes down to understanding insulin resistance. So that's what we do. We teach people how to reverse insulin resistance through our coaching program, through our education, whether that's our book or our podcast or our free webinars or our in-person retreats. We're just teaching people how to reverse insulin resistance. It's that simple. Yeah. And like I was telling you before, um, it's so interesting for me because for so long I was so deep in the keto low carb train. And then you guys got on my radar a couple months ago and I've been, you know, reading your book and diving into your content. And at first I was just like, you know, this is bullshit. I don't want to hear this, but then you, you open up to it and 
a lot of what you say makes sense. So I'm excited to dive into it um, mm-hmm. in the show. But I want to go back to the personal experience because I think um, everybody likes to to hear where you come from. So I know both of you have your own personal experiences um, reversing insulin resistance and with diabetes. So maybe Cyrus, can you tell me a little bit about um, how that played out in your own life? For sure. Uh, first of all, I want to say I want to start by saying that I'm glad that when you picked up our book that you were skeptical and you started reading it being like, oh, what the heck are these guys talking about? I don't, I don't personally want to believe this information. And then as you continue to learn more about the approach, you were like, well, you know what? Maybe this actually has some validity. I think there's a lot of people in that same camp mm-hmm. who have like come to a preconceived notion that like, I don't like plant-based nutrition, right? I don't believe in plant-based nutrition, right? And you sort of, it's like an emotional decision. But then once you open your mind to the idea that maybe there's a way that you can optimize your diet, then that's when cool things can happen and your health can really start to improve. So I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you know, for me, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes at the age of 22. So I grew up as a super active guy. I was playing soccer pretty much every day of the week. I was lifting weights. I was running. I was hiking. I was cycling. You name it. And uh, 22 years old, senior at Stanford University. All of a sudden, boom, I start feeling terrible. Thirsty all the time, drinking one to two gallons of water per day, urinating every 30 minutes on the clock, cramping when I went to sleep, had no energy. Picked up the phone. I called my sister and I said, hey, Shanaz. What is happening to me? Because she's a doctor of osteopathy and she started crying immediately. She's like, Cyrus, just go straight to the health center. It's type one diabetes, go. And I was like, I was like, I don't have type one diabetes. What are you talking about? And at that time, I literally thought that diabetes had something to do with old people and cake. That's, that's all I thought. <laughs> and so I was like, what are you talking about? You're a doctor. Yeah. How dare you provide me with such crappy information? She was like, Cyrus, I don't have the time to explain. Just go. So I show up to the health center. They check my blood glucose. I'm in the 600s. 600 is six times higher than your blood glucose is supposed to be. It's supposed to be between 80 and 130 all day long. It was six times higher. So they took me directly to the hospital. They, uh, they got me triaged immediately. Um, within 20 minutes, I had an IV of saline in the one arm, and then I had an IV of insulin at the other arm. And they were basically saying, hey, your, the beta cells in your pancreas don't make insulin anymore. We have to inject you with insulin in order to bring your blood glucose down. And we're going to teach you how to do that in your own life. So within 24 hours, I was discharged with a whole bunch of stuff. Number one, type 1 diabetes. Number two, alopecia universalis, which is why you can see I have no hair, right? No hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. I, I'm, I'm a hairless wonder. That had set in over the course of the previous six months. And they gave me like an official, official diagnosis there at the hospital. In addition to that, I had a third autoimmune condition called Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is now affecting a lot of people. So that was three autoimmune conditions. I also got a prescription for two different types of insulin, basal insulin, bolus insulin. I got syringes. I got a blood glucose meter. I got test strips. I got a carbohydrate counting guide. And I got a, a bracelet that said, hey, I'm a life alert patient. If you see me pass out on the sidewalk, call 911. So you can imagine going from just being like a normal dude to all of a sudden getting all of that on one day. And I went back to my dorm room and I was like, oh my God, what the hell just happened to me? This is weird, right? So I spent the first year of my life just trying to like piece together my life. And the doctors told me, they said, hey, listen, if you want to eat to control your blood glucose and try not to use too much insulin in the future, a low carbohydrate diet, that's the only thing you can do. So I said, cool, sounds great. What do I eat? They said, meat, fish. Eggs, bacon, chicken, 
Try to limit your intake of rice and fruits and potatoes and breads and cereals and eat more of those, you know, animal-based foods. So I said, sounds great. I love those foods anyway. So I did that for a year, thinking that my glucose will become more controllable and that my insulin use would stay low. But just like you, didn't happen. My blood glucose was a disaster. It was a freaking roller coaster all day long. My insulin requirements started out in the mid 20s, like 23 units a day. And then before I knew it, a month later, I was injecting 30 units of insulin. And then a couple months later, I was injecting 35 units of insulin. And then a couple months later, I was injecting 42 units of insulin per day. But yet my carbohydrate intake was super low. And so I was like, what is going on here? Like, am I just not doing this right? Mm-hmm. You know, in addition to that, I was exercising as much as I possibly could, but my muscles hurt, my joints hurt. I was becoming really anxious and I got a little depressed that I had to go start seeing a mental health professional because I didn't understand what the heck was going on. So a year later, I decided that I was going to just change everything. So I started asking people questions, looking for more information, reading, and I got open to this this idea of being a plant-based eater. So just like you, I initially approached it being like, plant-based? I don't want to be a vegetarian. I don't want to be a vegan. That's weird. Like I don't, I don't have a hula hoop, right? I don't want to wear a grass skirt, right? I don't play hacky sack. Like the, literally those are the thoughts in my head because that was the stereotype that I had of people who ate plant-based diets. But then under the guidance of a guy named Doug Graham, who's uh, went on to write a book called the 80, 10, 10 diet. He taught me how to switch over to a plant-based diet and get rid of all animal products. In one week, my blood glucose fell like a rock. My insulin use fell by 40%. I went from 45 units back down to 25 in one week. I had more energy. I was more hydrated. I could sleep all throughout the night without hypoglycemic episodes happening. And I just, I felt so much better. So I was so excited by this. I went back to my normal life. I continued this process. I just got, I just got super into it. A couple of years later, I was like, you know what? I want to learn this. So I went to UC Berkeley, enrolled in a PhD program, and I studied it for five years because I was hungry for science. And while I was there, I just unearthed this mountain of evidence, this mountain of scientific evidence that is, I kid you not, 100 years old from the 1920s to now that basically clearly describes the exact mechanisms that improved blood glucose control exactly the way that I described it. Here I was thinking that I was just some weird freak of nature, that nobody else had ever experienced this, and that I was an N of one experiment. But in reality, I was experiencing the same thing that had already been documented in research. Long story short, I met Robbie a couple years later. The two of us started talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could teach people living with diabetes how to really change their diet and become a more plant-focused eater? And then boom, we created Mastering Diabetes. And over the course of the last four years, we've changed the lives of, I don't even know at this point, tens of thousands of people. And we are very excited. We're only just getting started, but we are very excited that the world is now more receptive to the idea of a plant-based message. And it's been really fun so far. Okay. I have so much to dive into. Thank you for sharing that. That, Super interesting. And what's so funny, like when you were talking about... um, how there's all of this research from like 1920s. Like I, so about a year ago I went on, you know, I have all these people on my podcast who talk about their diet. So I always do them to see what happens. Um, and I went on the potato diet for a couple of weeks 
because do you know Andrew Taylor? Andrew Taylor, yeah, we did a good one. Yeah, so Andrew was on my podcast, and I was like, hmm, let me try this out. So I tried it out, and I went from like keto to potato diet. Um, but it brought me into all of this research, like the rice kumpner diet and all this stuff. And I was like, where the hell has this been hiding? And like, I was, yeah. and I was, and I literally paid for, I paid to get into Duke University archives to like find research about things. And I was like, what? It just makes no sense to me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was like a year ago, but then I kind of just set it aside because ego, right? Um, so there we go. But I just, when you brought that up, um, you know, a lot of people listening to this have probably read that article I wrote about it when I, when I found that out. Um, but I had all these questions based off what I'm reading, which I'll probably ask within this podcast. Um, For sure. Which is very funny how it's full circle. And I also think when you were talking about when you first talked, you know, your doctors told you that you were a diabetic and they were saying eat a low carbohydrate diet. I do kind of feel like that was forward thinking though, because I feel like most doctors are just like take enough insulin to cover what you eat. Yeah. So, so that's, Robbie will tell you about that because this is a missed opportunity in his uh-huh. particular situation, but you're right. Not all doctors say low carbohydrate diet. Some do. And I guess that's more forward thinking than your average doctor who says, just eat whatever, eat potato chips, eat donuts. I don't care. Just take insulin. Right? Yeah. But even then, the, I think part of the problem is that, um, we are on the verge of a paradigm shift. We are, we are on the verge of doctors finally receiving evidence-based nutrition recommendations in medical school. Right now, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And there are people in the plant-based community in particular who are now going to medical schools to teach prospective doctors the evidence of nutrition. Because up until this point, they haven't learned it. They learn about pharmaceutical medications and they touch on you know, nutrition for eight hours. It's, it's ridiculous, right? So you can't yeah. expect that your doctor knows anything about nutrition. I mean, yeah. they're going to know just as much as your car mechanic. Mm-hmm. No offense to doctors, but they just never learned it in the first place. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. That's definitely something that we hammer, <laughs> hammer down on this show. And yeah. something I want to, I want to point out for people who haven't read the book yet. And something that I love about this book is that you're talking to people who have believed like that low carb keto is the answer to blood sugar. And I think like the first paradigm shift has come from all these people who are like, Oh, standard American diet is awful. And I'm realizing the light like paleo, or there's all these vegans getting sick. Oh, paleo is the light. Right. But then it goes, it like, they do that for a while. And then now I'm seeing all these people in my space now going back to like plant-based and I'm like, (laughs) It's just yeah. like different levels of the paradigm shifting, right? Um, yeah. And so I think a lot of people who are in the keto, low-carb space throw out um, resources around plant, plant-based nutrition because they're assuming it's coming from, like, th- they're talking to people who are coming from a standard American diet, right? right. Um, and so that's what I love about this book is you're not necessarily talking to those people. Um yeah which I really feel like makes it very different than other books I've read on, on similar topics. So shout out I to you for that. I appreciate you saying that. That's really <laughs> nice of you to say, actually. It's funny. There's, I've been thinking a lot about why nutrition has become so complicated over the past, I don't know, 20 years or so, right? Because even when I was in graduate school from 2007 to 2012, nutrition wasn't that complicated. It's gotten significantly more complex mm-hmm. and more confusing over the course of time. And, you know, the irony is that we're at a position in human history where there's more information available today 
than there ever has been in the history of humankind. And that it grows literally by the day, right? But yet, the more information that people have access to, the more confused human beings become about what is the truth and what is not the truth. Mm -hmm. What is the truth and what is marketing? And so part of our responsibility is to translate the evidence-based science for people that don't read evidence-based science, right? Like you were saying earlier, you know, you, you, you have to pay to be able to go access research from Duke University. And then once you start reading this information, you're like, great, this is really, inform this, is, this is informative. But then there's more information and more information, more information. It's hard to really like understand how to put it all together, mm -hmm. right? There's this awesome quote that's, that I heard somewhere around um, in, in the world of nutrition that says, you know what? Science doesn't care what you think, okay? Science is science, right? Biochemistry is actually a very elegant science. It's complex. It's very intricate, but it is very elegant, and it tells a story, and it says, if you pull on this thing, then there's going to be another collection of reactions that move in this direction. And if you pull on this lever, then there's going to be a whole collection of other things that move in this direction. So just understand what are the levers, what can be pulled, and how you can manipulate this system to your advantage, right? I don't claim to be an expert in biochemistry. I just claim to know a little bit about it. And as a result, like the, this, the little bit that I do know has helped lots and lots of people, including myself and including Robbie. But the idea here is that people get confused easily because, because human beings like to put their opinions and their analysis and their analysis of someone else's analysis on top of the science. And in the conversations that happen on social media, the science gets lost. Mm -hmm. People don't even know what you're talking about anymore. It's just about the criticism of the criticism of the email that was sent to this person and excluded this other person and talked about a nut, but it not talked about olive oil. And it's like, come on, people, what are you talking about? It's too much. Yeah, no, it's, it's totally true. But I, and I think the other thing that adds to the confusion is that um, there are a lot of people, though, citing bad science, too. Oh, and no. then what and because you can't deny there are people like who represent the same philosophy as you that are spouting out bullshit science. Right. So yes. then that makes people like not want to listen to that side. Right. It, I think it's on, it's on both sides of the spectrum, like whatever your philosophy is, but like there are people who are talking about real science and also people talking about fake science. And like the common person doesn't know how to read scientific articles or really how to analyze that. So it just becomes a big clusterfuck. Well, <laughs> that is word. the right word. That is exactly, it's a circus. It's a clusterfuck. It's whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but I think it's really important for people to like, just realize that just because somebody from like, I mean, there are certain movies, right, that we all know that cite bad science, right? But then they throw out the whole idea with it. Does that make sense? Um, yes. And so I think it's important for people to realize that just because somebody representing one side says something that might not be legit, that doesn't mean everybody with the same philosophy, they, that they don't have the science to back it up. Well, well like you said, I mean, we're talking about good science here, and this book has over 800 scientific references. So, and we actually made them really easy for people to access this time. They're all on our websites. People can just click the DOI link and go look at the research themselves. Yeah. Okay. I love that. All right. Let's, let's get back on track. Okay. Cause I have too many things to ask. I also just want to clarify before we continue. So Cyrus, when you were eating more low carb, like, um, 
you reduced your carbs and you're eating more animal products. I want to know more about what that looked like. Do you like, do you know how many carbohydrates a day you were eating? Yes, I do. I do. So at that time, or we're talking the year 2003, sorry, the year 2002, actually, uh, the, the word ketogenic didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. It, it was, Atkins was like the, the, the lowest of the low carbohydrate philosophies. So, um, I did not eat a ketogenic diet. I did not eat an Atkins diet. I ate a typical low carbohydrate diet that contained between 100 and 125 grams of carbohydrate per day. Mm-hmm. Okay. So according to the quote unquote low carbohydrate classification in the research, that falls within that umbrella. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to, I don't want anybody to, to think that I did a ketogenic diet where I was only eating 30 grams of net carbohydrate per day because that's not a true statement either. Yeah. And then within that, were those, like, where were those carbs coming from? Okay. Those carbohydrates were coming from, uh, rice. Mm-hmm. I would try and eat a potato every so often. And that was kind of a disaster. I would try and eat some fruits like, you know, bananas and maybe some oranges, maybe some mangoes. Cause I'm addicted to those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I did not eat bread. Uh, I might've had some quinoa from time to time, but it was pretty limited. So it was pretty whole foods though. It was pretty whole foods. Yeah. I, I've never been a cracker bread eater, you know, I will have pasta, which is technically speaking a refined food for sure. Mm-hmm. So I'll add that into the, the mix, but I'm not sitting there eating cookies and cakes and donuts and waffles. That's not my, that's not my gig. Okay. And then what types of fats were you consuming? Okay. Um, turkey burgers for breakfast, eggs, milk, um, cheese, uh, chicken, small amounts of red meat, uh, definitely fish, like white fish. Mm-hmm. And then I would have olive oil. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. For sure. All right. Let's move. Let's move to Robbie. We didn't forget about you. <laughs> You're muted. Okay. I'll tell my story really quick here so we can move on to uh, some more interesting topics. It was, my story is very similar to Cyrus and how I was diagnosed. Just type ones. You're thirsty all the time. You go to the bathroom all the time. It's just that in my case, I knew what was happening because my older brother was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes eight years prior to me. Hmm. So I actually told my mom, I said, Mom, I think I have diabetes just like Steve. She said, no, no, you don't have diabetes. Don't be silly. And then eventually, a week or so later, she was out of town. She called to check in and said, hey, how are things going at home? I said, Mom, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping. She said, okay, go upstairs. Use your brother's blood glucose meter and test yourself. And I was well over 400. And just like Cyrus said, you're supposed to be between 80 and 130. That was clear right then and there. He says, you have type 1 diabetes, pack your bag, you're going to be in the hospital for a few nights. So we went to the doctor, got the diagnosis at the general doctor, went to the hospital, and then my parents flew back the next night and they said, look, it's just going to be an inconvenience. Don't worry, you can still live a full life and all your dreams can come true. So they made sure that we had the best medical care that they were aware of, and that was to take us to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And there I had an entire team, an endocrinologist, a nutritionist, a psychologist, and they did everything they can, the best of their ability to support me. But just like Cyrus said earlier, it's a missed opportunity. Their whole perspective was follow the standard American diet. I literally looked at the food pyramid, you know, have your fruits, have all the different categories. And they just said, take the insulin, just try and take the proper amount of insulin, be normal. At this time, I was 12, just about to turn 13. I was in middle school. And they're just like, you know, just try and be normal. So that's what I did. I followed the standard American diet and I had standard American symptoms. I ended up developing cystic acne, which was really frustrating to have that during high school. I did all the creams, all the pills, 
laser treatments, microdermal abrasion treatments. They eventually put me on Accutane, which is the most serious drug you can take for acne. My mom had to sign a waiver. This is terrible. I also had plantar fasciitis. So I wore these big blue boots at night for uh, passive stretching, which was super frustrating as a competitive tennis player. And I also had allergies year-round. Even though I took Nasonex and Claritin-D, I was still getting sick year-round. And I had warts on my feet, which is also frustrating. So just standard American symptoms. And eventually, I started to learn about lifestyle change through my dad. My dad was selling supplements. And that was the beginning of me thinking, okay, wait a minute. Maybe there actually is something to the food and the, and the supplements I'm putting in my body that actually affects my overall health. And that was the beginning of lots of lifestyle change. I did the Weston A. Price Foundation diet for a while. Um, I ended up finding some other things. The thing that really made me want to dig deep into all this was a book called Kevin Trudeau's Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. Okay? I don't know if anybody listening to the show remembers that. It was a very handsome guy. His purple book, infomercials everywhere, selling millions of copies. He eventually went to jail for some fraud. So I'm not recommending this book or this man. But the, the book changed my life in the, in the sense that it planted a seed in my mind that maybe it's possible to get my beta cells to work again. So type 1 diabetes is where our beta cells have been damaged. We are not producing sufficient quantities of insulin. And the dream is to get those beta cells to work again naturally, and then we wouldn't have to inject insulin anymore. So that was the mission that I went on. And I would do anything and everything to increase the chance of my body healing itself and making beta cells work again. I haven't figured that out yet, but it's led me to a lot of cool stuff. So I end up stumbling across a bunch of different diets. And I did do a, a plant-based ketogenic diet. I did the Gabriel Cousins style diet. And I know your audience is going to be interested in the details here because I know based on what you asked Cyrus, I, I love going into this. So when I followed a plant-based ketogenic diet, I was eating a total of 70 grams of carbohydrate per day, 30 net carbohydrate. So it's about 40 grams of fiber. And when I was doing that ketogenic diet, I would inject 10 units of total insulin per day. So if you do a total uh, 24-hour carbohydrate to insulin ratio, that is seven to one. If you look at just the glucose consumption, you take out fiber, you take out fructose, um, and you take out the, uh, you basically just left with glucose. You can do this analysis using software called Chronometer. I was consuming 10 grams of glucose per day and using 10 units of insulin. Okay, so that's a one-to-one ratio. Now, once I transitioned to a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, all my symptoms went away. So my skin cleared up. Plantar fasciitis is gone. I don't take any other medication other than insulin. I don't have any more warts on my feet. I have way more energy. I feel fantastic. I then started to consume 750 grams. So I'm doing now today. 750 grams of total carbohydrate per day. So I'm injecting 27 units of total insulin. So my total insulin has gone up. And now a normal healthy human pancreas secretes somewhere between roughly 25 and 50 units of insulin per day. That's a healthy physiological normal amount. So I'm, that's where I'm at when I'm now following this program. Now, if you look at the glucose I'm consuming, on average, I'm consuming 270 grams of glucose per day. Mm -hmm. So when you do that math, now we're talking about a 10 to 1 glucose to insulin ratio over a 24-hour period. So you do the math there, 
That's literally a 900% improvement in insulin sensitivity. And that's the beginning of me. Okay, wait, this is all happening while I'm in college at the University of Florida. And I'm like, okay, I got to go learn about this. And just like Cyrus, you dig into the research, you go back to the 1920s of year after year, decade after decade, peer-reviewed research documenting as you increase carbohydrate content and decrease fat, insulin works more efficiently. And then the question becomes, why does this matter? Like, who cares? Like, you, you were doing the keto diet. You were taking less total insulin. Your blood glucose control was good. If you do it properly, it'll be good. Like, why does that matter? Who cares? Like, you're, you're, it's, everything's fine. Well, number one is I had low energy. But number two is that you are living in an insulin-resistant state. You are choosing to live in a glucose-intolerant state. And there are long-term consequences to that. So insulin sensitivity, again, that's the whole, that's our entire platform. That's what we're doing here. I have this experience in my body. I see it every day, every meal. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I know how to become more insulin sensitive. And that translates to the true reversal of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. Insulin resistance is the cause of those conditions. So if you can live a lifestyle and implement changes where you are no longer insulin resistant, you are no longer pre-diabetic and you no longer have type 2 diabetes. And that's the message that we're sort of bringing forward. So our personal experience just is in alignment with 100 years of research and the thousands of people who've been through our program and many of our colleagues who've been teaching this stuff for decades. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little upset about how many pairs of blue light blocking glasses I bought before I found the real deal. But I think it was all for a purpose because I eventually ditched all of my orange glasses that weren't actually giving me the benefits and found the best ones out there on the market, which are blue blocks. I am obsessed with my blue blocks, blue blockers. I have multiple pairs of the nighttime glasses, which are the Sleep Plus lenses. These are a red lens that block 100% of the blue and green light needed to improve your sleep, reduce your anxiety, calm you down, and help balance out your hormones. And for daytime, I use the blue light clear lens, which block the necessary portion of blue light so you can avoid migraines, headaches, macular degeneration, and digital eye strain from being on your screens all day. The other option for daytime lenses is their Summer Glow Yellow Lens, which is blue light blocking meets color therapy. So the yellow lens will help people who also struggle with seasonal depression and or anxiety and who also want the benefits of blue blockers for daytime. And let me tell you, as somebody whose job is mostly on screens, whether it's my computer or my phone, I need to be wearing these glasses. Otherwise, I get horrible headaches. My eyes hurt. I feel so emotionally drained. I am really crabby and I don't sleep well. And I know most of us are on screens after the time when we are supposed to be. So as soon as the sun goes down, put on your pair of Sleep Plus red lenses and you'll notice a huge difference in the quality of your sleep, how you feel the next day, your energy, your productivity. It seriously affects everything, even your hunger levels. High quality blue blockers are a must have if you are serious about supporting your health and optimizing your productivity and efficiency. And blue blocks are the only pair I would recommend. They have a huge selection of frames to choose from, about 20, so you have plenty of options. My favorites are the Parker lenses. And you can also send in your own frames if you want to make those into blue blockers. 
and they have a custom-made prescription service as well. Plus, for every pair of glasses they sell, they donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who gives them to someone in need. So it's a really great way to give back. If you haven't already gotten your hands on a pair of Blue Blocks, then now is the time. Hop on over to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And you can use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off. Again, that's blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. And use my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off. And the next time you're wearing your Blue Blocks glasses, take a selfie and tag me on Instagram so I can see what pair you got. So it sounds like for both of you, it was a pretty seamless transition. Like it, for both of you, it was like you were like within a week, I felt better. But for people you work with, is that pretty common or are there people who it's a, a longer transition or more difficult for them? Okay, so uh, we wrote about this in the book. <laughs> like We're kind of like anomalies in the sense that we did, we did it that way and it works well for us. But that's a small subset of the population who can do that and who actually will go pretty smooth. We actually encourage people to transition slowly. One meal at a time is far better, especially when it comes to the fiber content. You're going to be increasing your fiber consumption dramatically, especially if you're coming from you know, a paleo diet or a keto diet or just a standard American diet. 95% of people in the U.S. population don't consume the recommended amount of fiber per day. So mm-hmm. everybody's pretty close to fiber deficient. And as you transition, you do one meal at a time, breakfast for a week, breakfast and lunch for a week, and then you get to dinner on that third week. Usually, it's a pretty smooth transition. Okay, yeah. I mean, I would just like to say I went from carnivore to a uh, to a high carb plant based, and that was not a fun transition. Oh, oh, you were actually eating a carnivore diet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I Tell was me, eating, what exactly yeah. were you eating? Well, and that was why it was so funny. I was listening to you guys on Paul's podcast, Paul Saladino, um, and I was just like cracking up. Like, I was like, you guys are never going <laughs> to get, get to the point. I'm like, can you just like, he loves to get nitpicky though. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was just eating meat, like, you know, grass fed meat, grass fed beef, like, um, and my blood sugar was crazy. Like it was just always like 180 to 200. And then I would have hypoglycemic episodes and I go down to 40. Wow. So it'd be like, oh, okay, okay, this is really interesting. So you would wake up with a fasting blood glucose of 180 to 200? Yeah. And it would stay that high all day long? It, no, it would just go up and down. I posted some pictures um, of a couple days on my Instagram, but like it, it would go up and down and I would feel it, right? Because I'm like, I'm going down to 40. And, I, and then I started, I couldn't sleep during the, during the night. And I would be, because this is where the C- CGM was so interesting to me, um, just seeing that. But it, yeah, it was just, it would spike in mm-hmm. and fall kind of all day, like really extreme. And I felt it. Um, I mean, it wasn't like in the 400s, but it was enough for me to feel it. And that made me really concerned. And that was the point where I was like, I can't eat any lower carb. So obviously I have to go yeah, in the other direction. Um, but yeah, so I'm just, yeah, slow transition. Um, especially if you have gut issues, like I have my history. So. That was one question I wanted to ask. And then the other thing is that I really want to address is you guys are like laughing like you're crazy. Um, but no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought up this gut health problem because uh-huh. there's a lot of people who eat either a carnivore diet or a low carbohydrate diet or a standard American diet. And over the course of time, many mm-hmm. years, they've developed dysbiosis, mm-hmm. right? Dysbiosis that results in a feeling of either gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, 
uh, mm-hmm. abdominal pain, and then they get diagnosed with any number of conditions, IBS, IBD, SIBO, um, leaky gut syndrome, you know, and any collection. It can just be really frustrating. Before you know it, the amount of food that you're eating has gone down to a very small amount. And then you're constantly testing your poop and sending it in the mail and trying to figure out what can I, can I eat this? Can I not eat this? Am I allergic to this? Am I not allergic to that? And it can become really frustrating. But we, um, what we've noticed is that people who make the transition to a plant-based diet, especially people who have uh, gut dysbiosis or experiencing gut inflammation, slower is actually better. Slower is more beneficial. So it's not a race. It's literally not a race. I don't even want you to try and incorporate, you know, 75% to 100% of your meals as plant-based for like three months, right? Because when you transition slowly, what you're allowing the bacteria in your gut microbiome to do is change over at a reasonable rate and not get to a point where, you know, a collection of bacteria that are not used to metabolizing fiber and all the other phytonutrients that come along with it are all of a sudden assaulted by a huge bolus of a fiber-rich meal, and then they don't know how to metabolize that, and then you end up producing a collection of gas that makes you feel distended and bloated and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So making small changes over the course of time is really the key to, to not only making the transition, but also making it stick in the long term. Yeah. Okay. So there are a lot of people listening to this show who have gut issues and have been on low-carb diets because of it. Um, and so I'm sure they're wondering when you were saying how sometimes that can cause more dysbiosis. Can you explain mm-hmm. why that is? Yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm not a gut health expert at all, but from the stuff that I have learned. Uh, by the way, I want to introduce you to uh, Dr. Will Buskowitz, Dr. B, if you haven't spoken with him. That guy, smart guy. He's all about um, gut health. He just wrote a book called Fiber Field, which is a New York Times bestseller as well. Okay, yeah. Um, and um, so when you're eating a diet that is has a very low fiber content, just like Robbie was saying, you know, a large majority of Americans don't consume enough fiber. It has been shown over and over and over and over and over again in, in evidence-based research that fiber is not just a material that is used to pull cholesterol into the toilet. That's what scientists used to believe. They used to say, oh, okay, well, you know, you can't metabolize fiber. Uh, and it doesn't really do anything in your body. It literally just acts like a chimney sweep and it goes through your intestine, into your, your small, large intestine, and it just drags stuff with it into the toilet, right? And so that's what, what the paradigm had been for many years. And then as scientists started to learn more and more about what is fiber and how is it broken down, and, and if you can't digest it, can the bacteria in your gut microbiome digest it? And what they found, or what they are finding, is that as you increase your fiber intake, what you do is you shift the population of bacteria from bacteria that metabolize animal-based foods that are low in fiber to bacteria that metabolize fiber-rich foods, okay? So a simple way to think about this is that the, the bacteria in your large intestine are a reflection of your diet. It's just that simple. If you're eating a significant amount of animal-based foods, then the bacteria in your gut will evolve over the course of time to be the bacteria that metabolize the breakdown products of those foods. Similarly, on the other side, if you're eating a plant-based diet and you're eating a lot of fiber and you're getting a lot of vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals, then the bacteria 
in your large intestine are going to be bacteria that metabolize the breakdown products of those foods. Okay. So the real question becomes, well, which one is better and why? And uh, there's a significant amount of research that shows that when you're consuming a fiber-rich diet, that a fiber-rich diet is more beneficial for gut health for a, a bazillion reasons. But one of the main reasons is because fiber is broken down by the bacteria in your gut and the bacteria in your gut break down fiber and they metabolize it into this stuff called short-chain fatty acids, SCFAs. Short-chain fatty acids like butyrate and propionate are very powerful signaling molecules that then go on to talk to tissues all throughout your body. And when they talk to tissues all throughout your body, they can talk to the beta cells in your pancreas. They can talk to your brain. They can talk to your thyroid gland. They can talk to your vascular, uh, to, to, to blood vessels. They, and so by doing this, when you're consuming fiber-rich foods, the short-chain fatty acids are like this army that goes out and does a whole bunch of repair work and tries to restore organs and tissues back to their normal function. But when you're operating in a fiber devoid um, world, then the short-chain fatty acids are just one component of, um, or, or one collection of biomolecules that are not manufactured in sufficient quantities. And as a result of that, tissues can become more dysfunctional over the course of time. Okay. So this, this leads me into a question. I'm just going to lump a bunch of things together here. Why is it that so, like in the paleo space, the keto space, low carb space, it's just like uh, so many stories of people who were vegan, plant-based, and they're so bloated all the time. Their hormones are a wreck. They're falling apart. Like they feel awful. They have blood sugar problems. Like, so what is it about like those people, right? Why it's not working for them? Cause that's what's popular, popularized in the low carb space. Um, that's different than like your approach. So one thing I just want to say on this topic real quick, and I'll let Sias throw in his two cents. Um, there are a lot of anecdotes. These are, these are anecdotes of people who are sharing their story via social media, which is amazing and great. It's beautiful, but it's not rooted in a large body of scientific research. And looking at the totality of human nutrition and what we know and what our book is based on and, you know, the people we work with, like, like Dr. B and whatnot, these dietary recommendations of like, what foods should you eat? Like people, they get so confused and so lost here. So sometimes deep into the science and just literally just getting too confused. But like at the end of the day, what foods should you eat? What groups of foods should you look for to have great health in the short term and long term? And it's not, it's not that complicated. The evidence-based research is very clear. Whether you're looking at mechanistic studies for insulin resistance and how, what foods actually cause it, what reverse it, whether you're looking at epidemiological research, what groups of people have large groups of people, what have they eaten and what is their long-term outcome, whether you are looking at randomized controlled trials, you, it comes up as the same, same story, which is more plants, less animal products, more whole foods, less refined foods, more food that's coming from nature, less artificial products. So I think there's too much confusion based on a small group of anecdotal stories. Whereas if a lot of, I think in a lot of cases, if you're working with a plant-based physician, there are nuances. There are things to adjust based on the complex health history. And nine times out of 10, it's going to be solved with the proper medical care. Did you want to add to that? 
Very well said. No, this is this fantastically said. Uh, anecdotes are all around the place. And there's, I mean, there's a power of anecdotes because I told you my anecdote. Robbie told you his anecdote. You have your own anecdote, right? And, and there's a lot to be learned from these individual stories. There's no question about it. But it, just like Robbie's saying, if you, if you stop listening to anecdotes and you start paying attention to what happens to people in a controlled environment in which a research team can manipulate single variables, you then start to learn more information about cause and effect, mm-hmm. right? We're free living human beings. And like, yeah, I changed my diet from uh, animal-based foods to plant-based foods. And that was like the predominant change that I did. There's no question about that. But in addition to that, I also changed my exercise regimen. I also stopped drinking alcohol, right? I also um, you know, started sleeping more. And like each one of these things contributes to and improved overall health, right? So I, I can't say that like my particular anecdote is like worthy of a scientific publication because it's not, and neither is Robbie's and neither is yours. But when you actually take a look at what the research says, then it becomes more credible. And, and when you look at it, whether it's a small pilot study involving 30 people or whether it's a randomized control trial involving 150 people or whether it's a double blind placebo controlled study or whether it's a prospective cohort study or whether it's a meta-analysis of a whole bunch of other studies, what you'll find at every step along this like research hierarchy is that the same story persists every single time. Just like Robbie said, more whole foods, more plant-based foods, better health, right? The one last thing I will say is that when people are saying, oh, okay, well, you know, I've been eating a ketogenic diet and I feel a lot better. I've been eating a, a paleo diet and I feel a lot better. I think there's a couple of things that we got to take into account. Number one, what was the diet that you started from? That matters. Okay. If you start from a standard American diet where you're consuming hydrogenated vegetable oils and refined carbohydrate rich foods, and you might be overeating on calories, I'm not surprised that you feel like crap. I'm not. Right. If you start from there and then you move to anything else, whether it's paleo, whether it's keto, whether it's plant based, whether it's low fat, plant-based whole foods, it doesn't really matter. You start to make some change, you're probably going to feel better, okay? So I think a lot of the anecdotes that come from the paleo world and from the ketogenic world come, and the plant-based world, I will say, come from people who started in a really crappy position to begin with, Mm -hmm. right? That's the first thing I'll say. And then the second thing I'll say is that um, a lot of the times when people experience overall health improvements, Many of those health improvements can be traced back to one thing, weight loss. Okay. So you see this in the, in the world of ketogenic diets all the time, all the time. You take somebody who's uh, 40 pounds overweight, type two diabetic, hypertensive, and they start eating a ketogenic diet. And before you know it, they go from 220 pounds to 160 pounds. Okay. So they lost, they lost 60 pounds. And all of a sudden they're like, Oh my God. My blood glucose normalized. My A1C normalized. I'm not taking oral medications anymore. I have more energy. I don't need hypertensive medications. My cholesterol level dropped. And you're like, great. That sounds awesome. And they, what they say is it's the ketogenic diet that got me these results. And the answer is, yeah, kind of. But the truth is that it's, it's weight loss that got you those results. Right? But in the absence of weight loss, if you do studies, that actually, I mean, there are phenomenal studies that actually separate out this variable of weight loss. And one in particular from 1979 demonstrates that if you take people and you control them for weight loss and you prevent them from losing any weight 
and you feed them a plant-based diet, their insulin sensitivity goes through the freaking roof, right? And so what you're doing is you're saying, without weight loss, what kind of changes can you get? Mm-hmm. And when you don't, and you're eating a ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate diet and you're not losing weight, you're not gonna get very good results. I hate to say it to you, but you're not. We all know I am no stranger to lab testing. I spent a good portion of my life seeing doctor after doctor and getting all kinds of different labs done and paying for everything all out of pocket. It was very expensive. And I also felt like I didn't really have very much control over which tests were being run. And when there were certain tests I wanted to get done, it felt like I had to jump through hoops to make that happen. And now doing so many different experiments on my body with different diets, different supplements, different healing protocols, different biohacks. I really like to have metrics when I can and getting blood work done can be a great way to kind of track what's changing. And as a practitioner, I understand how frustrating it can be for my clients and also for other practitioners because I work with so many other coaches. When the client wants to get testing done, but they don't feel like they have access and or for the the coach who knows the client wants to get testing done, but they can't run functional lab tests for themselves. And that's why I am so excited to be working with Let's Get Checked. I have been trying out their tests over the last few months, and I think that so many of you will benefit from their services. The mission of Let's Get Checked is to make professional health testing easily accessible to so many more people and make sure that people don't have to put off getting a test done because they don't want to or they aren't able to visit a healthcare provider. They have so many different tests that you can pick from. I recently got my cholesterol, CRP, and thyroid all tested. I wanted to see how those were doing after some of my recent diet experiments, but they have a whole host of different tests in addition to the ones I just mentioned. You can test your vitamin levels, your folate levels, your liver, your omegas, as well as your female hormones. They have a whole section dedicated to women's health testing and men's health testing. They also have a number of tests for sexual health. So this is really useful for making sure you're getting regular STD testing. If you are sexually active and you change sexual partners and you aren't getting regular testing, then that's something you really need to start doing. But they have a huge variety of tests and I just love how Let's Get Checked makes lab testing so easy to do and they just mail you a kit after you choose your tests online and there's next day delivery and then they give you really easy instructions so you can take the test from the comfort of your own home. You prick your finger and let the blood go into this little vial and then shake it up and mail it out and just so you know it does take longer than if you went to a doctor and had your blood drawn in in one you know two second swoop because you do have to wait for the blood to fill into this. It's not a big vial, it's it's a small vial. But I'm sure most of you are used to getting blood work anyway, so it probably won't phase you. So after you get the sample, then you just send it back, use the prepaid shipping label that they provide, and then you get your results back in two to five days. It is super quick. And then once the results are available, you can download them, you can look at them, and they will also be reviewed by a physician. So a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. And if you need any prescriptions, the physician can provide those for you. This is such an incredible resource to get lab testing done from the comfort of your own home. You don't have to jump through the hoops of 
trying to get them ordered by your doctor and also wait a long time for results. It's just a much easier process. So I'm really excited to be partnering with Let's Get Checked and to share this resource with you. And if you want to get some testing done for yourself, then you can head to trylgc.com slash wellness and insert my code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 20% off a checkout. Again, the link is trylgc.com slash wellness, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com slash wellness and use that code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 20% off. And I know a lot of people right now are looking for testing in an accessible and affordable way. So if you know anyone who you think would benefit from this resource, I highly encourage you to share this resource with them. Are there any studies that compare, like let's say on insulin sensitivity, compare a high carb, low fat, plant-based diet, whole foods to a paleo ketogenic diet that excludes dairy? There's a very small number of papers that study a low-fat plant-based whole food diet the way that we described in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that already brings like the number of research papers down to a very small amount. And then you're looking for a direct comparison of that versus a ketogenic diet minus dairy? Yeah. I think it's way too specific. I, I would I would love to see that study, but I I don't know of one myself. Yeah, yeah, I don't know of one either. And like that's kind of my point, where it's like I feel like do we really have a comparison of these two camps, right? Because I feel like then a lot of the people going against keto low carb, I'm like everybody was eating dairy. Like they're always, and that's why I ask what you guys were eating. I always ask you what they're eating because, and you know, you said this to me at the beginning. You're like, I would love to know exactly what you're eating because it comes down to the nuances. Sure. So here's, here's the deal. This, this conversation, it can be very simple if, if people choose to see it that way, okay? Again, I really hope people pick up our book and really take the time to dig into the topic of insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity and really understand what it is and why it's so important. And anybody, you, you know, you, you're, you're asking for that study, which would be great, it would be fun, it would be fantastic. But but we don't need that study to understand the simple fundamental principle of which dietary pattern will result in the greatest level of insulin sensitivity. That is so clear. It's black and white. There is no question. And, and the fact that there's any conversation about that on, on the internet, like, and as you read our book and you see us sort of pull out and call out some of the, the bad research, like you talked about earlier, it becomes clear. Like you see where people are just missing the boat. The biggest mistake coming from the low carbohydrate world. And again, they, they all mean well, like I love them. I respect them. We're all actually in the same camp here. We have more in common than we don't have in common, but the consistent mistake they're making in the, in the randomized controlled trials in this very, very high quality research in big, big journals, New England Journal of Medicine, whatever, all of them, is that they are calling a low fat diet, a diet that contains 30% of calories from fat, 26% of calories from fat, and includes a bunch of unhealthy foods. Mm -hmm. If you look, the best study that's actually been done, randomized controlled st uh, study, uh, called the Broad Study, published in 2017, they actually did implement the exact program that we're talking about here. Low-fat, plant-based, whole foods, ad libitum, eat as much as you want of fruits, starchy vegetables, whole grains, beans, eat as much as you want. Percent of calories from fat ended up being 15%, which is the maximum that we call for in our program. And this study, they compared that to standard care. Okay. And they saw 
the greatest weight loss of any study ever published without mandated calorie restriction and exercise. And they also saw their, the people in the control group going to an A1C, it was 6% to 5.5%. Their A1C went down, their weight went down, they also their, their like mood increased. Like the study was just fantastic. But the point is, there is no question about which foods result in the greatest amount of insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance. So for the person listening, I don't want people to get confused and ah, I don't know what to do. It's just a nightmare. It's like, no, 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 no. This is actually really simple. <laughs> and, and for 90% of people, when they implement the recipes we have in this book, we have like you know, uh, two 21-day meal plans. There's 30 recipes. If you implement that, you will be blown away by the transformation that happens. If you're living with diabetes, you see that the biomarkers change right away. Type mm-hmm. 1, it's just dramatic within days. Type 2, pre-diabetes, you start seeing your fasting blood glucose going down, reducing your medication, whether that's metformin or Genuvia or Trulicity, all that stuff's going down while you're increasing your carbohydrate content. You know for sure right then and there, you're improving your insulin sensitivity, you're addressing the root cause. The, again, this is like 90% of people. The people who end up having the dysbiosis that Cyrus was talking about and need to transition over like three months or so, that's a small subset of the population. It's not going to happen to that many people. Most people are going to see when this is implemented properly, they're going to see fantastic transition, amazing turnaround. And it doesn't matter what any crappy study or any doctor or whatever says who's saying that, you know, you got to limit your fruit, limit your potato consumption because it's going to spike your insulin and spike your blood glucose. It's patently false. Mm -hmm. And again, I can say that with so much passion and certainty because we're both living with type 1 diabetes and we've done this with hundreds and hundreds of other type 1s. There is no group of people that are better test subjects of how well insulin works than a true type 1, where your mm-hmm. CPEPTIDE is less than 0.2. That's the official criteria for type 1, meaning we our pancreas produces either an insignificant or zero amount of insulin. So the insulin we inject, that's the insulin working. We count our carbohydrate content, and a lot of us are now wearing continuous glucose monitors. So you wore that. I wear it all the time. And so published research in the New England Journal of Medicine recently studied time and range for people following, you know, standard diabetes care. And people using an artificial pancreas saw a, on average, 75% time and range. That means that their blood glucose for living type 1 was between 70 and 180, about 70, 75% of the time. And so the community thinks, oh, wait, if you start eating a lot of carbohydrate-rich food, your blood glucose is going to go up and down all over the place and you're going to need more insulin. And I can share with you again, anecdotally from my case and from the people we work with, that's not what happens. We end up seeing steady blood glucose. Our time and range increases. Personally, I'm at 92% time and range. And again, it's not because I'm special. It's because I follow the mastering diabetes method to a T. The closer you follow it, the better the results you get. Mm-hmm. And I use about 27 units of insulin per day. And again, more published research on people doing a ketogenic diet, the Bernstein-style diet. Again, I love Bernstein. They're eating 30 grams of carbohydrate per day and using 30 units of insulin per day. That's a one-to-one ratio. We talked about this in Chapter 7 in our book. We went the deep dive on keto. Cyrus and I are eating well over 700 grams of carbohydrate per day and using less than 30 units. And this is across consistently with our clients. So, again, I just... I don't want to go over the top here, but the passion is just so there. And when we're having this conversation about anybody, anybody who wants to question 
the fundamental fact that a, a low-fat plant-based whole food diet improves insulin sensitivity, if they question that, they simply have not read the science because the science is there. We don't need more randomized controlled trials to demonstrate that. And once other people implement that, their life can change. Well, I think that's the, that's the nuance, though, that people miss is that you were saying 15% or less fat. And yeah. like it's most people are doing like 20 or 30% and not feeling so great. That's and right. like, so why is it that, why is it 15% or less? Well, that guideline just simply comes from the over 100 years of research that we've looked at. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to, I mean, you read Walter Kempner's work. Mm-hmm. You saw the improvements of insulin sensitivity. His diet was like 2% of calories coming from fat. Yeah. And when you look at, you know, the epidemiological research and just long-lived people, you know, what, what kind of fat are they consuming? And a majority of them are closer to like 15%. There are some exceptions. Some of the blue zones are a little bit higher in their percent of calories coming from fat. But again, it's mostly unsaturated fat, which again, is different. It's different, but that gets into the nuance of, What's the difference between being super, super insulin sensitive, which is what you will get when you go to that 50% or less, or being, you know, moderately insulin sensitive when you're going closer to like the 20%, but more plant-based fats, unsaturated fat. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like Cyrus was talking about that study in 1979, that's James W. Anderson. I believe that diet was, uh, I think it was 11% of calories coming from fat. And that was where he took 20 patients living with type 2 diabetes. And in literally, I believe it was 18 days, on a no weight loss diet, high carbohydrate, they re- 50% of them reverse type 2 diabetes. And it's just, actually, that was 21 days. It was three weeks. And so there's, there's a laundry list of studies like this. I mean, in 1955, Inder Singh, he did a diet where he had, um, there were 80 people who joined his study, and 80% of them in just, I think it was six weeks, reverse type 2 diabetes, and that diet was 11% of calories coming from fat. Mm-hmm. There's r- research from Nathan Pritikin reversing type 2 diabetes. His diet was roughly 10% of calories coming from fat. So the research which shows people truly reversing insulin resistance, getting rid of prediabetes, getting rid of type 2 diabetes, is consistently under 15%. I have, I have yet to see any study where the authors showed true reversal of type 2 diabetes and Cyrus can actually go into a much deeper explanation of what is true reversal mm-hmm. on a diet that was, you know, higher than 15%. People, they see, you see improvements, you'll see, oh, yeah. lower well, A1C and all this stuff, but we're talking about reversal here. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. And I want you to explain that in a second, but my question there, and I'm just, I'm just trying to be an advocate for the people yeah. listening, right? For that sure. you, you know, <laughs> my perspective. Um, but what people are probably thinking is, okay, 15% or lower fat, or even some of those studies where people are on, you know, lower percentages, how is that affecting their hormones? You know, like their thyroid, their sex hormones, like, are you getting enough cholesterol? Are you getting enough fatty acids? Like, does that, like, what's your answer to that? Yeah, for sure. So I, I love it when people ask this question, because it's a very vague question when people say, like, I'm trying to balance my hormones. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. it turns out that you have like, you know, Which one? hormones. <laughs> In your body, are you talking about you're trying to balance IGF one growth mm-hmm. hormone, estrogen, progesterone, uh, estradiol? Like, what what is the hormone you're trying to balance, right? Um, and I think what people are trying to say is like, you know, I'm a woman, I'm trying to get pregnant, right? Or <laughs> I'm trying to not have such severe symptoms in menopause. I'm trying to quote unquote balance my hormones, right? 
And then from a male perspective, they're like, oh, I don't know. My, I have erectile dysfunction. I'm trying to like get more sexual function back, right? Or I'm trying to like put on some muscle mass. But is this even possible on a plant-based diet, right? And the truth is that um, there's, there's two classes of hormones, okay? There's, there's, uh, there's lipid-based steroid hormones, and then there's uh, peptide hormones, okay? So in other words, there are hormones that are built upon a steroid ring structure that is rooted in testosterone that then gets modified a thousand times in order to create a hormone, or there are hormones that are peptide hormones that are made from strings of amino acids, right? And so um, there's this common misconception. I think the, the first thing where people go wrong is they say hormones are made from fat. It's not a true statement. It's not a true statement at all. Okay. It is a true statement that when you consume cholesterol in your diet, the cholesterol that you consume in your diet can be used to manufacture cholesterol related things and hormones happen to be part of those cholesterol related things. Okay. Does that mean that if you go and eat a bunch of cholesterol, that you're going to all of a sudden start to produce more testosterone, that you're going to all of a sudden start to create more estrogen. Okay. Again, what I was saying earlier is that biochemistry is a very complex, but elegant science. And you know, one of the levers that you can pull is like, what happens when I eat more cholesterol from my food? Does that magically start making more hormones? And the answer is no, it doesn't do it that way because it's a very complex interplay between multiple tissues and a whole bunch of other factors that then can, you know, dictate your quote unquote hormonal balance, right? So it's, it's not black and white. But the real question that you're trying to ask, that you're trying to ask is, if I eat a plant-based diet and I'm lowering my fat intake and I'm, let's say, getting rid of cholesterol altogether, right? Does that mean that I'm going to all of a sudden, you know, going to have low bone mass? Am I going to have low muscle mass? Am I going to get erectile dysfunction? Am I going to stop having my period as a female, right? And the answer is no, 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 okay? The answer is your liver synthesizes cholesterol and it knows exactly how much cholesterol to make to satiate all tissues in your body. Okay, so you actually have a cholesterol manufacturing facility on board inside of your liver and your cholesterol manufacturing facility is not reliant on external cholesterol. Okay, you can eat cholesterol from your diet, but it, it's not required. And are you going to make enough cholesterol? Sure. Is that cholesterol going to go on to make hormones? Sure. So I don't, I don't want people to think that they have to eat cholesterol from the outside world in order to make hormones. It's too simplistic of an argument and it's biochemically inaccurate. Okay. And then secondarily, if you limit your fat intake, is that going to somehow impact your quote unquote hormones? And the answer is you can get to a point where you have an, a very low fat intake, you know, like 5% of calories is fat. We're not recommending that. 10% of calories is fat. We're not even necessarily recommending that. I mean, people, what we teach people is eat between 10 and 15% of your total calories in fat. And when you do that, you're going to maximize your insulin sensitivity. That's going to drop your overall chronic disease risk. Is that going to negatively impact your ability to manufacture hormones just by limiting your fat intake? And the answer is no. Biochemistry is much more complicated than that. Fatty acids are not even used to manufacture hormones, so we shouldn't even be talking about them in the same sentence. Okay. Okay. So I, I think what I want to say is that I think a lot of people get into trouble when they're in the middle ground. Mm. Like, I think a lot of people get into trouble because, and I know this happened to me, like so many people are on high protein, low carb, low fat diets, and you're in this weird 
middle area where your body's like, where's my fuel? And I think that is just a shit show. Um, And so that's what I would say to people like listening. And that was something that I like when I first started looking into this stuff, I'm like, okay, we like this middle ground (laughs) is really important to pay attention to. Um, And when things aren't working, like, because I, even for me, like I spent some time on what I thought was a low fat diet for a while and I felt like crap. And then I tracked my macros and I was at 30%. And then I noticed it felt way better when I went down to like 10 to 15. Um, But I think sometimes without that awareness, I mean, you don't know, especially if you're coming from a high fat diet and you're like, oh, I'm super low fat. You feel like you're eating no fat and it's still 30%. Um, So I think for people listening and just questioning anecdotes, like that's why I ask what people are actually eating because I think a lot of problems come from being in that weird middle ground with your macronutrients, like, and also not just, just not eating enough calories. I'm so glad you brought up that point because you're 100% right. And I think raising awareness and just understanding what you're doing is like step one. Using mm-hmm. some nutrition software is just very, very enlightening. And you do not want to be in the middle. <laughs> it's a bad place to be. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So can we bring it back to like true, what's truly causing insulin resistance and what, what reversing it really means? For sure, for sure. Okay, so are you asking like, what's the biochemistry that causes insulin resistance? What's the biochemistry of insulin resistance? Well, well people listening think eating too many carbs makes me insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. So I don't get it. That's what they're thinking. Got it. Okay. Okay, let me tell you the story of insulin resistance. Okay, when you consume, so insulin resistance is caused by the consumption of excess fat that results in the accumulation of excess fat in tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fat. Let me say that again. Insulin resistance is caused by the excess accumulation of fat in tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fat. So when you eat food that contains a significant quantity of fatty acids, like we talked about earlier, red meat, white meat, fish, chicken, eggs, bacon, olive oil, or even plant-based fats like avocados, nuts, and seeds, um, olives, and beyond. When you're consuming fat-rich foods, the fat is actually locked up in this molecule called a triglyceride. Okay, that's how most fat is eaten in food. Triglyceride means glycerol as the backbone, three fatty acids attached to it. Triglyceride. Okay? So you consume the triglyceride molecules amongst a whole sea of other nutrients. They travel down your esophagus, they get into your stomach, and then they get into your small intestine. Your small intestine is basically a, a, a bioreactor. And the bioreactor is, is inside of that. There's a whole collection of uh, enzymes that are manufactured by other tissues and they're thrown into that bioreactor. And their specific purpose is to try and rip apart the materials that are in your food. Okay, so your liver manufactures digestive enzymes. Your pancreas manufactures digestive enzymes. Your small intestine itself manufactures digestive enzymes. And this cocktail of digestive enzymes is designed to rip apart the triglyceride molecule. It's also designed to rip apart protein. It's also designed to rip apart carbohydrates. It's also designed to ex, uh, to, to, to pull out vitamin B12 and vitamin B6 and vitamin A and, and a whole collection of, of nutrients that are in your food. So the triglyceride molecule gets ripped apart in your small intestine and the fatty acids that are liberated are then pulled through the wall of your small intestine and they get inside of these particles called chylomicron particles. 
the chylomicron particles, think of them as like little spaceships. Okay, they're these things called lipoproteins, and they hold fatty acids and cholesterol esters. Cholesterol. Okay. So these chylomicron particles um, pick up the fatty acids and they circulate through your lymph system and they eventually get into your blood. Inside of your blood, these chylomicron particles, they travel all throughout your body. And their job is to donate both cholesterol and fatty acids to tissues that ask for them. So if the fatty acids were destined for only one tissue, and that tissue is your adipose tissue and your fat tissue, then there would be no problem. Type 2 diabetes wouldn't really be a thing. Pre-diabetes wouldn't really be a thing. Okay? So these chylomicron particles are there to basically say, hey, which t- hey, tissue do you want some fatty acids? Do you want some fatty acids? Do you want some cholesterol? Do you want some cholesterol? And it turns out that like a good portion of those fatty acids and cholesterol go into your adipose tissue where it's designed to be. Okay, your adipose tissue is specifically designed. It has the enzymatic machinery to be able to uptake fatty acids from your blood, store fatty acids for a long period of time, repackage them as triglyceride molecules, and then get rid of them or export them when the time is right. Okay, what ends up happening over the course of time, though, is that uh, fatty acids, they do get into your adipose tissue. But then in addition to that, there's spillover. And the spillover goes into your liver and it goes into your muscle. And that's okay if the fatty acids get inside of your liver and get inside of your muscle because your liver and muscle are also designed to uptake fatty acids. But here's the kicker. Your liver and muscle can store a tiny fraction of the amount of fatty acids that your adipose tissue can store. Okay? So your, your adipose tissue is this giant Costco warehouse that says, sure, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. I'm designed for fatty acids versus your muscle and liver they're saying, okay, give me a small amount. I can handle a small amount and I can store it in this thing called a lipid droplet, but I'm not designed to take up very much of the stuff. Okay? So what ends up happening is that when you eat a diet that is chronically high in fatty acids because you're specifically doing that, eating a ketogenic diet or eating a, a, a paleo diet, then it's very easy to overwhelm your liver and muscle with too much fatty acids um, within a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So when you're eating a high-fat breakfast and a high-fat lunch and a high-fat dinner, and then you do it again tomorrow and then again the next day and so on and so forth, and you do this for weeks on end, then your liver and muscle in a short period of time become overwhelmed. And there's, they're being forced to uptake fatty acids from your blood, even though it exceeds their storage capacity. And in that situation, these two tissues basically go into self-protective mode where they're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I got to stop this stuff from coming in. So if they could basically full-on block fatty acids from coming in, they would do it, but they can't do it. There's very poor mechanisms to block fatty acids from coming in. So what they do instead is they say, okay, let's block insulin because insulin is a master anabolic hormone. And insulin's responsibility is to signal to tissues to uptake energy whether that energy comes in the form of glucose or comes in the form of amino acids or comes in the form of fatty acids. So when insulin is present, insulin goes, knock, knock. I got this stuff in the, in the blood. Do you want to take it up? I got glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? Yes or no? I got fatty acids in the blood. Do you want to take it up? I got amino acids in the blood. Do you want to take it up? And tissues normally respond by saying, sure, give this stuff to me. But in this particular situation, when they've accumulated too much fatty acids over the course of time, when insulin comes and knocks, these tissues are like, no, 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 no. I don't want to pay attention to you right now, insulin. So what they do is they create this thing called insulin resistance. Mm. So insulin resistance is basically a situation in which these tissues literally, they pull the insulin receptor back inside of the cell and they're like, hey, get back inside. Don't talk to insulin right now. Like, 
don't talk to insulin, right? So they pull the fatty, the, the insulin receptors back inside. And then the insulin receptors that do, uh, you know, continue to exist on the outside surface, they've become less functional over time. Mm. So what that means is the next time you go eat something that's carbohydrate rich, like a banana or a plate of rice or some raisins or a mango, then the glucose molecules that are trying to get inside of those liver and muscle cells, they're going to be escorted by insulin. Insulin's going to go, knock, knock, I got this glucose. Do you want to take it up? And those two tissues are like, don't pay attention to insulin. Don't pay attention, right? So insulin is basically like, well, you're not responding to me. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm screwed. Mm-hmm. And so insulin gets trapped inside of your blood and glucose gets trapped inside of your blood. So you become hyperglycemic and hyperinsulinemic at the same time. And as a result of that, that's classic prediabetes, right? High lipids, high glucose, high insulin all at the same time. And the reason it's happening is because there's a traffic jam inside of your liver and muscle. And the goal is to try and reverse that traffic jam so that it doesn't exist anymore such that the next time you eat something that's carbohydrate rich, insulin can go knock, knock. I got this glucose. Do you want to take it up? And the cells are like, cool. Where you been? Insulin. Haven't seen you in a while. Get in. And then small amounts of insulin can transport large amounts of glucose into the tissue. And when that glucose gets inside of the tissue, it can be stored or burned immediately for use. Okay. So the real problem is not what, what people do is they say, Oh, okay. Look, look, Christina, look, Robbie, look, Cyrus. I just had one banana and my blood glucose went up to a 220. I just proved it to you. Okay. Bananas are what's causing insulin resistance. Carbohydrates cause insulin resistance. Sugar causes insulin resistance. In reality, it's not the banana's fault. It's everything that you ate before the banana that Mm. caused a traffic jam that made it so that you couldn't metabolize the banana, right? So what we're suggesting people do is, is don't blame the messenger, okay? Don't blame the thing that caused the high glucose. Look at everything that happened before that and try and figure out if the thing that you ate before that actually created a traffic jam. And when you do that, you'll be pleasantly surprised to find out the fatty acids are causing the traffic jam. Minimize them, don't eliminate them, and watch as your insulin sensitivity goes through the roof. Thank you for the explanation. That was excellent. (laughs) Well, no, and it's just like, I think for a lot of people, they're going to have to listen to that a few times because it's so opposite what they've been taught and what they've been told. And also because so many people blame it, they're like, well, just the unhealthy fats. And like from your explanation, it's not just that, right? Um, Absolutely. And like, I know your uh, opinion on intermittent fasting and people can read about that in the book, like when people are ready um, to start intermittent fasting. But I'm curious what you think about the people who, um, when it comes to, you know, the risks of having chronically high blood sugar, they say it's not about what you eat. It's just how often you eat. And some people are saying, no, carbs, carbs are fine. Like people who are in the low carb space, now they're, now they're changing their tune and saying carbs are fine. You just can only eat them once a day. They're like, and this is why people are really into like, like, you know, OMAD one meal a day, because now people think it's not even what you eat. It's um, how often you eat. Do you think there's any validity to that? Okay. So again, this is a perfect example of people getting overly complex with nutrient timing and nutrient quantity, and they're missing the bigger picture. So I'm a huge, Robbie and I are huge fans of intermittent fasting. Okay. We love intermittent fasting. Intermittent, I studied intermittent fasting when I was in graduate school. I understand that it is a very powerful collection of techniques that enable you to improve your metabolic health. 
So I don't want people to misinterpret me, misinterpret it as saying Cyrus doesn't believe in intermittent fasting or Cyrus hasn't read the research of intermittent fasting. Okay. That is not a true statement. But if, if, if you are in an intermittent fasting camp that believes that the human body is only designed to be able to intake carbohydrates once a day, you're mistaken. That's not a true statement. Hmm. Okay. If you're in a camp that says, Oh, you, the maximum amount of carbohydrate that you can consume on any given day is 75 grams, that you have a quota of 75 grams of carbohydrate per 24 hours. That is not a true statement. Okay. The truth is that yes, intermittent fasting is very powerful. The truth is that your carbohydrate metabolism is a function of your overall macronutrient balance. It's just that simple. And if you specifically design your diet to be something like 70% carbohydrate from whole foods and then 15% fat and 15% protein or closer to like 80% carbohydrate from whole foods and 10% fat, 10% protein, just watch as your carbohydrate metabolism does things which you never thought it could do. Mm. You will turn into a carbohydrate metabolizing machine. And when you do that, then these rules of when to eat and how much to eat and how much exercise you have to do and how many grams of carbohydrate here and how many grams, it's just like throw them out the door. They don't, they don't make sense anymore. Okay. We're trying to get people to pay attention to the evidence. And it just so happens that the evidence suggests that you can be very simple, very simple in the way that you eat food. And I don't want you to have to put on one rule after another rule after another rule after another rule that makes it so that your life is, is, is like dictated by a whole collection of rules of if then this, if this then that. Okay. Human beings were not designed to eat according to an if this then that uh, methodology. Okay. Trust me when I say we've done a lot of science and we've read a lot of science and we've participated in a lot of science and the science shows that if you eat something like 70, 15, 15 or 80, 10, 10 of whole food, mm -hmm. then your carbohydrate metabolism becomes incredibly powerful. And that's what we're suggesting you do. It's just that simple. I believe you. So much science. Um, I do have one more question though. Yeah. And we're going to get, it's still nitty gritty, but have you noticed, so let's say somebody's like, okay, I want to try this. I want to try a truly low fat, high carb plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. Do you notice any differences in blood sugar control? Like for people who eat mostly raw foods versus if they're having cooked foods, like, does that change what's happening? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, it's, it's a very, 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 very subtle nuanced detail. Um, and it's very measurable in people who are living with type one diabetes because we have to inject our own insulin. But the answer mm -hmm. is yes. If you're eating a, a strictly raw plant-based diet versus a more cooked plant-based diet, the person who's eating the raw plant-based diet is going to have an easier time controlling their blood glucose for less insulin. This That's is a so true statement. Why is that? Phenomenal. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I've been searching for that answer for years. Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that question. I really don't. I would love to learn why that's actually the truth. I see it in my body on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Right. And we've seen it. We have a plenty of other clients who, who from, again, from an anecdotal perspective are yeah. reporting the same results. Okay. Yeah. I, I haven't seen any science that backs this up, 
I would love to see the science. I would love to read the science. I'd love to participate in the science. But up to this point, all I can tell you is that from an anecdotal perspective, when I go from eating or when, when people with type 1 diabetes in particular go from eating a raw plant-based diet to a more cooked plant-based diet, they just have slightly higher insulin requirements. Does that mean that it's bad to eat cooked food? Heck no, not at all. Mm -hmm. Incorporated, yeah. it's fine. Having a couple more units of insulin floating in your blood doing its job to consume, to, to metabolize cooked foods is fine. Do it. I'm a happy camper. Okay. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. I was trying to look up more about it too. And I was like, I can't find anything here, but I've, I've heard that as well. Is that why you guys eat? I feel like you eat a lot of fruit more so than like cooked starches. Is that why? Part of the, the leading, my theory, again, I haven't yeah. seen research or done enough myself, is that potentially it's because fruit is higher in fructose. Mm. Which does not require insulin. So that's the best theory I have so far. And honestly, if somebody wants to really dig into it, or even if we wanted to do research with our clients or something, you could figure it out. Because what you do is you use an app like um, Chronometer, and you can actually go in there and you can tease out how much fructose you're actually having or how much glucose you're having. Mm -hmm. And you could compare the diet. Like, okay, wow, when I decide to have a dinner which includes, you know, quinoa and brown rice and chickpeas compared to a dinner that's based in mangoes and papaya and some zucchini noodles or something. Uh, what's the difference in glucose consumption? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that might explain it. I have this one other friend of ours who's kind of like experimented with that and started to basically dose. Again, this is incredibly nuanced stuff. Nobody listens I, to this. I like this but though. If you want to, if you if you wanted to be a type one to get really, really granular, you could start dosing instead of net carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. could, I mean, and, and instead of total, you could dose based on glucose. You can calculate each meal exactly how much glucose is in this meal using chronometer, and then dose on that, and you can see if if that improves your control. But again, it's not necessary. Okay. Yeah, I just think it's interesting because I know like in the plant-based world, there are some people who are so heavy, like they're all like starch. You're eating too much fruit, eat more starch. And then there are other people who are the opposite. Um, and so I just think it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I like to get but, into it. But details. like Sarah said, you know, our mission here is to make mm -hmm. this simple. Mm -hmm. We just want people to eat whatever they love. <laughs> that's, that's, you asked like, why does Cyrus not eat a lot of raw food? Yeah. We just both happen to love fruit. Like, yeah. <laughs> Cyrus is the mango man. Like I live in Santa Monica where I get access to incredible fruit from the local mm -hmm. farmers markets. The imports from the LA wholesale market are just absolutely bonkers. And I just love sweet things. <laughs> I just had a bunch of figs this morning for breakfast and I'm happy with that. So we're all about catering this to each individual. And that's mm -hmm. why we started Mastering Diabetes. Uh, that's why we're so passionate about the coaching because everybody's different. Everybody has these nuances and we are adamant about when those challenging cases come and people are confused and they're dealing with bloating for an extended period of time and they follow everything, but it's just not working. Mm -hmm. That's when you bring in the plant-based doctors and mm -hmm. we work closely with several of them who have a ton of experience and they help solve these nuanced problems. Love that. Awesome. Well, I know people are going to want to connect further with you and learn more about your program. So can you just tell everyone where they can learn more from you guys? Okay. So the best place to go is our website, masteringdiabetes.org. Go there. And then the upper right corner, there's a button that like, says, am I a candidate? And take the insulin resistance quiz. That's a great opportunity to find out where you stand right now based on your current dietary patterns. That's the best thing to do. Um, 
We also have a podcast ourselves. Just type in Mastering Diabetes into any podcast platform. You'll find us. We're active on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube. So if you enjoy those platforms, check us out. And you can get the book anywhere. We read our own audiobook, which was super fun. We added extra material at the beginning of each chapter to talk about some of the background and what we were thinking about in the writing process. So that's fun. And the book's on Kindle and Nook and all bookstores, Amazon. Check it out. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate you answering all of my questions. So thank you again. Absolutely. Thanks for having us here, Christina. Uh, we totally appreciate your your attention to the details because it really makes a big difference. And uh, I think, you know, like we said earlier, it's it's confusing. Sometimes I'm sitting there reading the research and I'm like, no, I'm confused. I don't really understand what's happening here. Right. And the truth is that nutrition is only as confusing as you choose it to be. Very true. It really is. You know, so you can go bury yourself into a rabbit hole and try and figure out, you know, how acetyl-CoA can get through pyruvate dehydrogenase and the mitochondrial barrier in order to blah, 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 blah. And it's just, it, I mean, sure, go for it, learn it. But you can also just say, wait a minute, I think that eating carrots, according to the evidence-based research, uh, you know, has the carrots have more nutrient density than chicken. And you can just keep it as that, that simple, right? So there's a, there's a simple way to understand nutrition. And I think if you, um, anyway, my, my point is that you're doing a great job of like really trying to educate people about what options they have. We appreciate you allowing us to be here. And, uh, and your, your personal story, I think is like very similar to what a lot of people are experiencing. It really is. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's really cool to hear your personal story. And again, like I said earlier, I want to, I want to be able to continue to help you out and continue to fine tune your diet so that you get excellent health as well. And uh, whatever you need, we're here for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys are the best. Huge thank you to Cyrus and Robbie for coming on the podcast and sharing so much incredible knowledge. Don't forget to check out their book, Mastering Diabetes. And you can learn more from them about their coaching program and all of their content at masteringdiabetes.org and on Instagram at masteringdiabetes. And don't forget, if you want exclusive behind the scenes content related to the podcast and my life, request access to my private Instagram page, Wellness Realness Crew. All you have to do is DM a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review to that page, Wellness Realness Crew. Request to follow. And when I get that screenshot of your iTunes rating and review, you will get access to the page. You can also connect further with other listeners in our free Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. I'd love to see you in there. That's going to be it for today's show. Thank you again so much for tuning in. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day and I will chat with you again next episode.